0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So as we look at the passage of Scripture tonight, there are two lingering questions that every single one of you have asked. I guarantee it. You've either asked these two questions or you will ask these questions, but these are questions that are universal to all human beings on planet Earth. Here's question number one. Why do I suffer from time to time? Why am I experiencing trials and tribulations? Why do I have to go through hard times? Anybody ever asked that question? Why? Okay, that the first question is the why question. Why am I going through it? Second question is, okay, if I'm going through it, how? How do I handle suffering? How do I get through these difficult times? How do I survive the the times of suffering? So, two big questions. Why? Sometimes we may never know why we suffer. So, that's a big question we often ask. The other big question we ask is, okay, if I am going through suffering... How do I get through it? The book of Ecclesiastes tonight will address both of these. You may not like this answer. Hopefully you'll like this answer. But either way, suffering is something that all of us deal with from time to time and from varying degrees of others. And so... Um, Solomon answers these questions, but before we even get into the text, let's just ask the why question from a big picture point of view. So before we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, I want us to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and let's go to Genesis chapter 3, because this is where it all started. What happens in Genesis chapter 1? God makes everything. What happens in Genesis chapter 2? God makes Adam and Eve. It's just what happens in chapter 3. It all goes south, okay? Adam and Eve disobey. Okay? So when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you find out that Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They hide themselves with fig leaves. As if you can hide from God because they're guilty. God finds out where they are, and then God pronounces a curse upon the creation because of what Adam and Eve brought into the world. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and following. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and you shall bring forth children in pain. A man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forevermore." Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, death came into the world, pain came into the world, suffering came into the world, hard work came into the world, pain and childbearing came into the world, tornadoes, cancer, struggles, everything that you can think of that is unpleasant, bad, or evil came into the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So the big question, why do we suffer? Well, you can go all the way back to the very beginning and say the main reason we suffer is because we live in a fallen world where Adam and Eve brought sin, pain, suffering, death into the world. Will it be reversed? Yes, in the new heavens and the new earth at the coming of Christ. Until that time, what type of world do we live in? A world of pain Sorrow, struggle, and eventually death. So we're stuck with this. You can't escape suffering. It doesn't mean that you're always going to suffer. It doesn't mean you may suffer as much as somebody else. But by being a product of living on this earth, in some way or another, you are going to suffer. And what's the one thing every single one of us is going to experience? What's the 100% statistic every single one of us is going to experience? Death. We're all going to die one day. Okay? because of Adam and Eve's sin. So sometimes we suffer because of, we'll just call it the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve, sin brought into the world. Now in the Old Testament, oftentimes they would suffer because of disobedience. So let's look and see the history of Israel for a moment. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. So we're going to look at... A few Old Testament passages here before we get to. um, This is the golden calf. You remember the story of the golden calf? Big act of idolatry. Moses goes up on the mountain. All right. So let's see. Let's start in verse 25. When Moses, this is Exodus chapter 32, let's start in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you shall kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you to this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written... But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is a graphic scene of pastors going out with swords and killing people in the camp because they had sinned. And God sent a plague. So this was direct suffering because of what? Unrepentant, flagrant sin. So sometimes we will suffer simply because we live in a fallen world of pain. You don't do anything bad. You don't deserve it. It just happens because you live in a fallen world. You can't quite explain it. Other times you may suffer the consequences of sin and experience either the direct consequences of that sin or the indirect consequences of maybe God's discipline on your life. Okay? Leviticus chapter 26. We see another example. I'm not going to read all of this, but in this passage of Scripture, God gives... Blessings for obedience, punishment for disobedience. Verse 14, if you will not listen to me and and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies, and on and on and on. So God will punish them for their sin. We can go on to Judges chapter 3. Real quickly, I'm just kind of showing you reasons why we suffer. Just kind of give you... um, This is kind of a pattern in the book of Judges. The people forget God. They go after other gods. They are overtaken by a ruler that oppresses them. They cry out to God. God delivers a judge or a ruler, and then they get back in God's good graces again. It keeps going over and over again. So there's also an example in the book of Judges of consequences of sin. Um, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Let's just look at that real quick. This is another example where God brought um, punishment upon Israel, but He brought reprieve. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquities and pardon that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, so sometimes we suffer because of sins, but let's go to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Yeah, we're going to get to Job here in just a moment. So hold that thought. Job asks a different question. Job asks the question, why do the righteous suffer? Because he didn't do anything wrong. There were no consequences of sin in his life that he was being punished for. And so that was even harder for him to understand. So let's go to chapter, Romans chapter 8. And let's look at um, verse twenty. And till now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says the creation itself is in bondage to decay. So we live in a decaying, sinful, fallen world of sin, pain, and suffering. We cannot escape it. So here's the fundamental question. During times of suffering, we often fail to fully trust God. Do we have more handouts? Or are we? Some of you, do you guys want handouts? You guys good? Okay. I'm seeing people writing notes, and you don't need to write notes because it's all here for you. <laughs> all right. Well, there's a bunch more back there. So that's the question we've got to ask tonight. When you go through times of suffering, do you fully trust God? How do you go through times of suffering? So let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes and let's read together what Solomon encourages us with. And again, I said some of you may not like his answer, but if you have a problem, take it up with him, not me. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Yeah, we got extras up here. Who else needs papers? Is that it? Okay. You guys have extras. Okay. So, let's read this. And if you remember last week, it was all about the vanity of um, wealth and materialism and money. Today's lesson or tonight's lesson is all about suffering, hardship, adversity. How do you handle it? So let's pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, and go into chapter 7, verse 14. This is one unit of thought in the original Hebrew text, okay? Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask them this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In that day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Okay, so here's the main point of this teaching tonight. In times of suffering, we should trust in the sovereignty of God by looking for the good in the midst of the bad. Okay, so let's look at chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. This is number one, point number one. God is God and you are not. Okay? Now, why do I get God is God and you are not? Let's look at these passages closer. Verse 10: Whatever has come to be has already been named. What does that mean? It means this: Whatever comes to pass has been predetermined by God. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, we don't quite understand what it means to be named, but do you remember back in Genesis, what did God do to Adam? Did Adam create God, or did God create Adam? And what did God call Adam? Adam. Adam? Okay, it's not a strict question. So, when you name somebody, you're in charge, right? In Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. From the very beginning of time, who's in charge? God or man? God. We are totally dependent upon God for even our breath. Our life. We are the clay, not the potter. But what has happened as a result of the fall? We have been cursed with death. We came from dust and we will go back to dust. That's why at funerals, sometimes at gravesides, what do we say? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We were formed. Now, there's a play on words there because... The word for Adam is very similar to the word for ground or dust. They almost mean the same thing. We are made of clay, dust. God is our creator. He's the potter, we're the clay. We're totally dependent upon Him. And so Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return Adam did what with the animals he named the animals which shows that he had authority over the animals God named Adam shows he has authority so when it says here whatever has come to be has already been named what that's saying is God has already planned out what you're going to go through Psalm 103 14 For He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. So from the very beginning as humans, or more literally those who came from dust and will return to dust, we are totally dependent upon a sovereign God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Let me just give you something from the Second London Baptist Confession, which is a famous Baptist Confession God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet as so, thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. This is from 1689, by the way. That's why the words are... Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty of contingency, of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears His wisdom, disposing all things of power and faithfulness, and accomplishing His decree. Now what is he trying to say there? Everything that happens to you is not an accident. It's from the hand of a sovereign God who's either ordaining it or allowing it to happen in your life for a purpose. So that's why sometimes we don't like the why. Why is this happening to me? I have no idea, but God is sovereign over it. Okay? Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for a moment because we've already seen this. He's already taught us this back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Look at verse 1. To everything turn, 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 there is a season. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. All these things that we talked about that encompassed the life of a person, God has sovereignty over that. And then you look at verse 14 of chapter 3, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear Him. God has ordained everything in your life. Now we'll see that in just a moment. But he's setting the stage saying everything that has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. What is man? Dust. And look at the second half of verse 10. He is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. Who's the one stronger than man? So here's point B. We are foolish to argue with God. We should not dispute with one stronger than us. Let's talk about Job. What happened to Job? Got everything taken away from him. Everything. Except for his body. I mean, he was even, you know, he didn't die, but he got afflicted with sores. We looked at this last week. Everything was taken away from him. And his wife says, curse God and die in dust and ashes. And Job's sitting there with sores all over him in ashes with everything lost. His friends come up and say, you're suffering because something happened. You must have done something wrong. Retribution theology, you've done something wrong. God is punishing you. And over and over again, Job keeps saying, I've not done anything wrong. I've not done anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And finally, at the very end, God comes and says, what? Does God ever give Job the answer as to why he's suffering? What does Job hear from God? God simply says, were you there when I created the earth? Were you there when I did all these things? Are you going to talk back to me? Are you going to try to tell me how to run the universe? Are you going to try to tell me how to order your life? Brace yourself like a man, Job, because I'm showing up. That's basically what God says. And then here's Job's answer in Job 42, 1 through 6. Job answered the Lord. This is the very end of the book. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I can't stop what you've set out to do. No plan of yours can be stopped. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Basically, Job's saying, you're right, God. You're God. I'm not. You're sovereign. I'm not. I have no right to question why you're allowing these things to happen to me. Is God obligated to ever give us an answer as to why we're suffering? Does God sometimes give us answers? Yes. Does sometimes God not? Yes. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Or that famous line from Romans 9.20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So God ordains or allows whatever happens in your life for a purpose. And it's foolish to argue with him about why he's doing it. He may be doing it for reasons you don't know, or he may reveal those reasons for you, but he's God, you're not. And so this leads to the second or the third thing to see under this, and that is, we must humbly accept whatever God ordains for us to experience. Can you stop it? No. (laughs) So you humbly accept what God has ordained. So here's question number one that Solomon asks. We see this in verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Question number one. What is, what's good? What is it good for me to experience when my life is like a vapor in a fallen world? What does God, ha- what, what does God have in store for me in this fallen world? Because I'm here one moment and I'm gone the next. I'm like a vapor. Psalm 144.4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Question number one, what's good, God? And then the second question is, we don't know the future, so we must fully trust God. What does the future hold? Notice what he says at the end of verse 12. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Anybody here know their future? Anybody here knows what's going to happen next? Anybody? Can you control your future? You can plan. You can strategize. But can you ultimately control the future? Okay. So the question then becomes, if I can't control the future, and I'm going through stuff right now, and God is sovereign... Then I must trust him that he knows what he's doing. God is God, I'm not. James says it this way in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say tomorrow, or I mean today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So what should be our attitude in life? I'm going to make these plans, but if the Lord wills something different, I need to follow what the Lord wills. That's why we say Lord willing. I'll be here next Sunday, Lord willing. Do I have control over that? The Lord wills it. And so that's what James is saying here. So point number one is God is God and you're not. You can't control the future. You don't know the future. God has ordained whatever comes to happen in your life. You are like a shadow passing through a fallen world. And so you've got to have this perspective that I am totally dependent. I'm dust, totally dependent upon a sovereign God who knows what he's doing. Even when it may look like I have no idea what he's doing. Okay? But, second big point that he makes in times of suffering, God has ordained some experiences that are better than others. I want you to notice as you go into chapter 7, you probably see a repetition. What do you see? Such and such is better than such and such. Such and such is better than such and such. He's making a comparison. Something is better than something else. And then when you look at what he says is better than something else, it goes counterintuitive to what we would think. So here's the first thing he says is better. Contemplating death is better than living in denial. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Look at verse 1 of chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of your birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let me ask you a question. What is the house of mourning? What does it mean to go to the house of mourning? What's he talking about? Attending a funeral. He's saying it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Now, what will we think? What's more fun? A party or a funeral? Party. A party. There might be more food at the funeral. Might be, at the funeral. <laughs> might be better food. Depends on who, you know what the spread is. What happens when you attend a funeral? You cry. No, you can cry. You can cry. Every time you attend a funeral or a memorial service, what are you reminded of? The curse, the finality, and the certainty of our own death. When you have a funeral, it is not a celebration of life. What's a funeral? It's the mourning of a person who has died because death is the final enemy. Death is a curse. Death is a result of the fall. And so we are reminded that our loved one has died, and we too will die. A lot of people call it a celebration of life because they don't want to deal with the fact that there is a death. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a celebration of life. Don't, don't hear me when I say it's wrong. But in our culture, people are afraid to deal with death. And so they'd rather celebrate the person's life, which is nothing wrong with that. But what's the purpose of a funeral? Do we ever realize that, the reason, that we're, the reason we're here is because death is an enemy? Death has been introduced into the world as a curse. Death is our final enemy. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Death is something that we all deal with. And we are reminded when we see a casket or we go to a graveside that that's going to happen to me one day. Because what does he say there? The living will lay it to heart. What does it mean to lay it to heart? Those who are still alive at the funeral are going to think, I better better think about some things here. I better be sobered here because life is short. I don't know what the future holds. I'm going to die too. And so this gets me to think about how I live my life. The psalmist puts it this way in psalm chapter 90 verse 12 so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom sometimes it's better to think about death than to live in denial how do people live in denial of death what do you see in our culture There's nothing, I'm not saying anything against cosmetic surgery, but cosmetic surgery is a way to what? Defy death. I don't want to get old. I don't want to get saggy. I don't want to. I, I want to be the way I was when I was 20, and I'm 80. And so I've got to get. I've got to look. I, I'm an 80 year old, but I got to look like a 20 year old. And so we try to prolong life because we don't want to deal with death but we're all going to die one day. So the question is not how do I prolong death, it's how do I live a life that glorifies God until the day He ordains for me to die. Bob, I think you were going to say something. Or there's a- yeah, I, I, I would just kind of backtrack what you said on some earlier sessions that, you know, the idea of Christian versus non-Christian. And somebody who dies as a Christian is going to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so it could be a very good celebration. Yes. And, good to have party. and I've heard two people say, you know, uh, heaven is a place where people go, they wouldn't want to come back to earth even right. if they could because it's so great up right. there. Right. And, and, you know, and the idea of the Christian yeah. versus the yeah. non-Christian. Right. A Christian funeral should be a cause of joy and excitement because you know the person is in the presence of the Lord. But it's still a time of mourning because that person has died. So at a funeral, you are reminding people that death is the final enemy, but it's not, it's not the final end. There is a final resurrection. There is the hope of, and we'll talk about that when we get to the end of my lesson tonight. I'm trying to build a case here. Of, I'm waiting to give you the hope at the end, okay? I'm trying to get you all depressed so that you can get, no. Okay, so here's the second thing he says here. Sorrow is sometimes better than hollow laughter. Hollow laughter, okay? Look what he says there. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The word laughter that he uses there really means, it's not like joyful laughter or happy laughter or or like a godly laughter. It's more of an empty laughter, a laughter that's hollow, A fool wants to go to a party. What's a house of mirth? He wants to go to a party so he can forget about his troubles. What happens if you're going through times of struggle and you go to a party, what are you wanting to do? Have fun, forget about it, kind of get wrapped up in it. And sometimes what do you do at parties if they're bad parties? Drink, do stupid things, and try to forget your problems and live in denial. And you may tell jokes and you may be there and you may feel like you've been pumped up for a little bit, but are you truly getting godly encouragement or is it just kind of a quick fix to make you feel better in the moment? That's what he's saying here. Is sometimes all you do when you go to these parties and you have hollow laughter, it's just like a it's like a temporary band-aid to deal with suffering. It may help you feel good for a while, but does it really bring true, lasting joy. And so he's saying there, sorrow is better than laughter. Isn't it part of that because it has more meaning? Like when you talk about hollow laughter, it's just, it's meaningless, like a gut, Virginia, because someone's cracked you up that has a little bit of meaning. But a lot of times it's just empty empty. laughter. And sorrow Mm -hmm. has true feeling to it. Exactly. Like you're missing the person that's there or you're heartbroken over... Something. Right, it's sorrow. Sense. Sorrow is a r- sorrow is a true gut level, visceral emotion that has substance. Hollow laughter is exactly what it is. It's, it's really hard not to try to communicate with God when you're in sorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When are you closer to God? When you're sorrowful, or when you're having fun at a party? Yeah. House of pleasure. House of mirth. What did Jesus have to say about? Mourning. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Luke 6.21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Can you be sorrowful and always rejoicing? It's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing here. So it's good to contemplate death because it keeps us sober about the realities of life. It's good to mourn at times because it helps us process. It helps us grow closer to the Lord. It helps us to truly deal with our real issues and not just mask them. Okay, here's the, 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 the next thing he says. The constructive criticism of the wise is better than the empty songs of fools. What does he say there in verse 6? I'm sorry, in verse 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. What's a rebuke? Rebuke is a criticism, constructive Constructive criticism. So let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a good, trusted friend come give you constructive criticism on how to be better, or would you rather go sing songs at a party that don't really mean much? Okay. Do you sing some dumb songs at parties at times? Do they really help? But have you ever been helped when a friend comes and says, let me just address an issue in your life that I see, and I'm coming to you with honesty, and I'm coming to you because I love you, but here's a blind spot that I really think you need to know about. How many of us receive that? What's he saying? It's better to receive the rebuke than to hear the song of fools. He talks about crackling thorns under a pot. Um, in that ancient world, they would use thorns to start a fire because they were dry. And they may start a really quick fire and get things, the kindling gets hot quickly, but because they're so dry, they fizzle out really fast. So he's basically saying, hey yeah, when, a, when, when, you, when you go to a party and when you're hanging out with friends and, and, and you know, they're trying to encourage you with all this laughter and, and fun frivolous stuff, it's like it, it may give you a jolt of energy right away, but it's going to fizzle out like the crackling of a pot. It's going to leave you feeling empty. You would rather have the rebuke of a friend than the empty songs of the fools now i like music and there's a lot of songs we sing that are just good i'm talking about secular songs but do they have a lot of meaning to them I was just like thinking as I was, doing this, I was doing this yesterday and I'm thinking, okay, like there's an old song, but it's like a really good song that makes you feel good. It's the song by Kool and the Gang Celebration. Celebrate. I mean, we all, I mean, that song gets you feeling like everybody likes that song. It makes you feel good. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a party tonight. I mean, we're going to get celebration. We, we like it. See, oh, you're laughing. Look at you. You're all laughing. Some of you are back there dancing. But when you walk away, you're like, what does that song really mean? Is that really, I mean, yeah, we had a fun time with the song, but is there any substance to that song? Does it bring lasting encouragement? No. Maybe help you feel good in the moment. Would you rather like listen to cool in the gang all day long celebration or would you rather have a trusted friend come in your life, get in your face and say, "Here's where I think you need help. Let me address that to you." Most of us I don't know where we're at on that. Maybe we want to listen to cool in the gang. Or whoever your favorite song is. I'm not I'm just saying, like the happy song by, what's his name, Feral. Uh Proverbs 12.1. Whoever, I'm not saying anything against that song. I'm just saying there's songs that we sing that make you feel happy, but there's not a lot of substance to it. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. What's reproof? Correction. Constructive criticism, if you don't ever want to receive any type of criticism, if you don't want anybody to ever tell you that what you're doing is wrong or sinful, the Bible says you're stupid. Okay, I didn't say it, the Bible said it, okay? Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And then we've got Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Body blow, body blow, body blow. Dumb, you know. A a good rebuke goes deeper. Some of you guys are back there laughing because you remember the old video game. (laughs) All right. The next thing he says is, oppression tempts us to make foolish decisions. Now, this almost seems like it's out of place, but it's in the scripture, and it's it's right there for us in verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Let me just ask you a question. When you're struggling, when you're going through difficult times, are you sometimes tempted to take shortcuts to make things better? Even if those things may be illegal, immoral, or unethical. I'm not saying you would do that, but during normal times of prosperity, would you ever take a bribe or would you ever give in to madness during normal times? Probably not, but if you're under some serious stress, would you be more tempted to do that? And that's what he's saying here. During times of oppression, during times of struggle, there may be a temptation for you to take a bribe, take a shortcut do something to succumb to temptation that would be something unethical that you may do to try to make the situation better as opposed to waiting it out, okay? Which leads us to the last thing here in this big second section. When trials come, it is better to suffer patiently and wait on God's outcome. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better is the end of a thing. Uh, The word end of a thing there really means the outcome, God's ordained plan being fulfilled, the end product, all's well that ends well. He's saying it's better to wait on God's timing to work out His plan and be patient in that than to be what? Proud. Impatient. What is one of the hardest things to do when you're going through a trial? Tom Petty was a good theologian. The waiting is the hardest part. Lamentations 3, 24 through 26 The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is a good, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So, when you handle... Or when you face difficulties, one of the hardest things that we will have to deal with is waiting. Anybody here patient? I want to find find you out. (laughs) I'm not a patient person. Most of us by nature are impatient, right? When things don't go our way, what do we want? God, speed it up. God, take it away. God, do this. I don't want to have to go through this anymore. God, would you please do that? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying that. But if God doesn't speed things up, are you willing to be patient and wait for Him? And in the Old Testament, people were just well exactly, because they're humans. And they, were not patient. they were not patient. We're not patient. Okay? So, those are some better things that we are to go through during times of suffering Now he's going to give us three appropriate responses to suffering and trials. Okay, so here's, he's telling us how. Okay, how. The why, okay, why it's a result of the fall. Sometimes you go through sin's consequences. God has ordained these things for you to go through. You don't know the future. Sometimes you don't know why you're going through these things. You may never know. You're going through a trial. You're going through a struggle. You're going through a temptation. You're going through a a tribulation. Why is it happening to me? I don't know, but how? How do I respond? He gives us three ways to respond. Here's the first appropriate response to suffering and trials. We see this in verse 9. Instead of getting angry be patient. What does verse 9 say? Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Proverbs 12, 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now James almost quotes this in James 1, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Are you tempted when you go through trials to get angry? And what does anger oftentimes lead to? Sometimes anger leads to you explosively expressing it. That's what he says there. Anger lodges in the heart of a fool. But what does it mean for anger anger to lodge in the heart? Sometimes you nurse that anger. Sometimes you let that anger turn into bitterness. And what happens when you get a root of bitterness? It goes deep in you. And you get angry, you get irritable, you get impatient, and you're not a very fun person to live with. And you say things and do things that you would get. Exactly. It will go deep inside you. And instead of getting angry or bitter during times of suffering, be patient. Wait on the Lord. Ask God to give you that patience. Okay? So that's one appropriate response to suffering. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. Don't get irritated. Ask God for patience. Ask God for help. Ask God to give you the strength to, to not be irritable or angry. Don't let, that, don't let that anger lodge in your heart. What happens if the anger is going to lodge in your heart? If it, what does it mean to lodge? Get stuck. Like if something gets lodged in your throat, i got, you know, I got something lodged in my throat. Lodge means what? To make a home. When you go to a lodge, what do you do? You go hang out for a few days. (laughs) We went to the lodge, the travel lodge. Don't let anger make a home in your heart because if it does, it will turn to bitterness. Okay, so that's appropriate response number one. Don't get angry, be patient. Here's response number two. Don't complain about the present by trying to go back to the past. What does he say there in verse 10? Say not. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. What are you tempted to do when you're going through trials? Let's go back to the good old days. Let's go back to when things were better. If I could just go back, God, just take this away and let me go back. Give me a do-over. Let let, let me go back in the past. Is that ever going to happen? Are you ever going to go back? But how often do you live in the past? A lot of times when you face trials, you want to go back to the past. I'm not saying don't remember the past. I'm not saying that there's not memories. It's just physically, can you ever go back to that place? So you're in the present and you've got a future. What's the two things you've got to be focusing on? What you're going through right now and how you're going to handle it moving forward. You can't go back. Yes, Dodie. Okay, but you don't want to go. Yeah. But, you know, there's security in the past, and so a lot of people want to go back to the past for some reason. Maybe it was even bad, but at least it's something they know, and it gives them security. Um, So don't complain about the past. I mean, don't complain about the present by trying to go back to the past. Okay, number C, or letter C. Wisdom in times of suffering is a great advantage to give you hope in times of trials. Wisdom is of great advantage to give you hope. Now, let's see what he says here in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage. Wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage, there it is twice, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. We saw last week that the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. But is money bad? No. You need money to survive. Let me just ask you. When you have money in your bank and you have financial security, do you feel more at ease? Do you feel protected? Do you feel secure? Do you feel... You don't feel a lot of uneasiness, right? When you're, when you're, set, when you're, when you're financially stable, and that's what he's saying there. When, when you have the protection of money, it's an advantage. But what's he saying is even greater than that? As great as money is, having wisdom during times of trial is a greater advantage than money, which means that having wisdom will give you peace, will give you that security, will give you that wisdom to deal with what you're going through. One of the things that you should be praying when you go through struggles, sometimes you ask why, you may not ever get an answer. But one thing, three things you could be praying. God, please help me not to get bitter. Number two, God, please help me not to want to go back to the past, but really focus on the present and what you're teaching me now. Number three, God, please give me wisdom to know how to handle this. Those are re- appropriate responses to trials because you can't change the circumstances, but God can give you wisdom. God can give you patience. God can give you strength in the midst of it. He may not ever tell you why, but he's going to be there in the middle of it to give you those things. So you can be praying for those things. Lord, give me strength to, be, to, be, to have wisdom. Lord, give me strength to be patient and not bitter. Lord, help me to focus on today so that I'm not so focused on, on the past. Okay? Okay. So, number one, God is God and you're not. Number two, some things are better. Now, here's his conclusion. God is God and you are not. He repeats the conclusion with the same thing he started out with. Look at verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God Now, this is a command now. Consider the word. What does it mean to consider? Think about. Process. Examine. Look at. Look at what? The work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Now, what's this all about? Here's what it means. Consider God's sovereign hand in ordaining your struggles. Now, I need to explain to you what it means there when it says, who can make straight what he has made crooked. When you think of crooked, what do you automatically think of? Bent. He's not talking about evil. The word crooked here does not mean that God has made something evil. It means God has ordained Suffering. And so the question he's asking here is who can make, who can change, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Who can change what God has determined for you to go through in times of suffering? And what's the answer to that rhetorical question? You can't. If God has allowed, ordained, permitted, however you process that, if God is sovereign over what you're going through, can you change it? No. Can you change how you respond to it? Yes. You can't change what God is ordaining for you to happen. You have control to change how you're going to respond to it. In other words, we can't change what God has ordained for us to go through in suffering. He has determined that we will go through it for a purpose and we can't change what God ordains. Now let me give you three passages of Scripture that will That will challenge your theology. Okay? But they're in the Bible and they're pertinent to this question. Isaiah 45 7. This is God speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, do you see the do you see the comparison there? Look at the verse. What does light represent? You've got two words there. You've got light and you've got dark. And then you've got well-being and you've got what? Calamity. Calamity. So what are those really meaning? What what is light and well-being? What could we say these are? These are times of... Let's just say these are times of prosperity or blessing. These are the good times, okay? Good times, bad times. So darkness, calamity, these are what? Times of suffering, bad times. Question, does God create or form only your good times or does he do your bad times too? What does that verse say? God's doing this. He does them both. What do we like to think? When I'm going through really, really good times, that God's in control. I'm going to praise God. He's awesome. He's giving me blessing. When you go through bad times, what are you tempted to think? Do you see this as God ordaining you for you to go through that too? I told you you're going to struggle with this theology. But you got these verses we've got to deal with. God does both of these. God is going to bring about times of suffering for you and times of prosperity for you. When things are going really well, it's easy to believe that God loves me. Right. And when things are down, God, why do you hate me? Sometimes? Okay, that's what Job thought. <laughs> does God's love for you change depending upon your circumstances? Okay, that's a good thing to remember. Okay, all right. Let's look at another passage of scripture. Job, when everything was taken away from him, and his wife got in his face and said, "Why don't you just curse God and die?" She really did. She's like, "Just, just cuss God out and go die." How would you like your wife to say that to you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, why didn't God strike her? He lost everything else but, but his God. wife, and she comes to him and she's like, Job. You've lost everything. You're sitting there with boils on yourself. Why don't you go cuss God out and then go commit suicide is really what she's saying. It would be better for you just to go do that. What does Job say to her? You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. (laughs) He said to her, shall we receive good from God and shall not we receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. What did Job perceive in his mind? Everything that happened to him good or bad was from whom? God. Now what Job did not know at the time was that Satan wasn't a player in that. We know it because we've read the story, but at the time Job did not know that. So, let me just challenge your theology even deeper. Sometimes God will permit or even allow Satan to attack you for his purposes. Well, God even brought Job's, or Satan's recognition. Yes. yeah, it, was, it it wasn't like Satan said, "Hey, I've, I've got my eye on Job over here. God, do I have permission to go touch him?" No, Job, de- the devil presents himself before God, and God says, "Have you considered my servant Job?" Now, so <clears throat> Satan is still a creature. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He can only do what God allows him to do. And sometimes God may allow Satan and his demons to do some spiritual warfare in your life for a purpose you may not know. Now, that may scare you. Okay. No, seriously, and it's because of studying Job that it's like, I mean, God was proud of Job and was, you know, showing him off to Satan and daring him, really. And so I feel, I guess maybe it helps me feel better during times of suffering to feel like, okay, you know, God is giving me, allowing me to go through this because he knows that with his help, I can make it through it. Right, exactly. He wouldn't
1: wouldn't have put put you through it.
0: Yes. Well, here's the thing, that, and this is the thing that, that I think that everybody struggles with. Okay, so when you go through a, let's just call it a bad time. When you go through a bad time, it can be one of three things. Number one, it could just be suffering because God is allowing you to suffering. There's no consequences to sin. There's nothing that you did. It's just God is ordaining suffering. Other times, it may be spiritual warfare where God is allowing Satan to attack you for a purpose and the suffering is from spiritual forces. Other times, it may be discipline. You have sinned and you are either being disciplined or you're facing the consequences of your sins. And so sometimes it's hard to navigate. Am I suffering because I'm suffering? Am I suffering because it's the devil? Is I'm, am I suffering because it's discipline? It may be a combination of all three. It may be one of the three. Don't get so wrapped up in this. The issue is who God is sovereign over it. God is allowing you to go through it or ordaining that you go through it. The question is, how am I going to respond? Okay. Job trusted him in God so much. Yes. That it actually even through his suffering he never let down one minute. And I think that's the lesson we have to learn. Yeah. He never he sinned. He never charged God with wrong. I mean, isn't it very easy when we go through suffering to say, God, you did this to me. I'm blaming you, God. It's your fault, God. And we put all the blame on God. Now, God is allowing it to happen for a purpose, but do we have any right to impugn God or to, to try to say, God, you know, it's all, it's all on you? Well, maybe it is all on him, but he's doing it for a purpose for you to grow closer to him. Lamentation 3.38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that what? Good and bad come. So what comes from God's mouth? What comes from God? Both good and bad. So we've got three verses here that say good and bad come from God. He either ordains it, allows it, permits it, however you want to do that. Now, we need to be careful here because some of you may be thinking something. And that's why the 2nd London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession and these other confessions that say that God is absolutely sovereign, they also protect this idea that we need to be careful here and not charge God with doing evil or sinning. God cannot sin, nor is God evil. So if God allows, ordains, permits good and bad, is God doing sin and doing that? No. Sure, we, we don't know the whole story. So we can never say that God is the author of evil or the author of sin or God sins. But let me challenge you with some more theology tonight. Can He ordain evil or calamity or suffering as part of His sovereign plan without Himself doing anything evil? Yes. God can predetermine, plan, plan, evil to happen and not himself be the one doing the evil but planning for it to happen okay. now I'm going to give you two examples from the Bible of where we see this one from the Old Testament one from the New Testament where God can't ordain evil to happen while he himself is not evil where humans carry out God's plan but the humans are responsible for doing what God ordained them to do but they're still responsible okay All right, this may be a little bit, we're going to some deep waters here, but let me just give you two verses here. Example number one is Joseph and his brothers. What happened to Joseph? You remember Joseph? Sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead. Let me ask you a question. Did his brothers do evil? What did they do? They betrayed him. They left him for dead. They went back and lied to their dad. They sold him into slavery. Are those evils? Who is responsible for those evils? (laughs) the brothers are responsible for carrying out the evil actions of selling their brother selling Joseph into slavery and sinning against him but who ordained that to happen God is God evil in doing that does God ordain the evil to happen are the brothers responsible for what they carry out did God plan for it to happen yes how do we know that well, let's listen to what Joseph says when he has an encounter with his brother. What? The outcome was good, but I want you to notice Joseph's words to his brothers. When, they, when, when the masks come off and the veils you know, revealed and everybody knows who everybody is, listen to Genesis 45, 5-8. The brothers are freaked out because he's second in command in Egypt and they think that he's going to you know, kill them. For He thinks that now that they're face-to-face... The brothers are going to get what's coming to them. Remember, Joseph could have said, man, all those years ago, you guys sold me into slavery. I'm the second in command. You're going to get what's coming to you. You're going to get punished because you left me for dead. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Well, which one is it? Who sent who? God sent Joseph, but the brothers sold him into slavery. Which is it? Both, right? The brothers acted freely in selling Joseph into slavery. God acted freely in ordaining it. God's responsible for what He's responsible for. The brothers are responsible for what they're responsible for. For the famine has been in the land these two years... And there are five years yet in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all Egypt. Who technically sent Joseph there? Technically, though. Literally. Physically. The brothers. The brothers literally sold Joseph into slavery, they sent him there. What does Joseph say? It wasn't you who sent me here, God sent me here. So who sent Joseph into slavery? God or his brothers? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Both. But this is what we're talking about, about not developing bitterness. Right. Things, but... Yeah, Joseph is a perfect example of someone that did not get bitter, that understood it was God's plan. If anybody could have been bitter, it would have been Joseph. But he understood that God was doing this. Now, did the brothers get off the hook? They're still going to be accountable. They st- Joseph never says, hey, guys, you know, let bygones be not bygones. You, you, know, you didn't really do anything evil. No, he says, you sold me to slavery. But it wasn't you who sent me here. God did. So God is sovereignly working out his will to have Joseph there but it's being carried out by the brothers who are doing evil actions to get Joseph there. Does that make sense? Okay, at the end, in Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph reiterates this. In Genesis 50-20, "'As for you, you brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it.'" What's the it? "'God meant evil for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today.'" You, you brothers, you had a plan. What was your plan, brothers? You planned evil, but God planned good. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to what Joseph says here. Does God simply, quote, respond to evil actions after the fact and then somehow work them out for good, or does God have a sovereign intention or design in everything that happens? The second, the first is God says, uh-oh, Something happened, and I didn't see it coming, so I better come up with a good plan to make good on this. Is that the way our God operates? Or is God sovereign and knows exactly what's going to happen and determine what's going to happen, and yet the the brothers acted evilly? God designed that evil action to come about to be good. Joseph does not say... God used your evil for good. He says, you meant, you meant. What does the Hebrew word meant mean? Literally, it means to weave. But in the case, it means to devise, to determine, to plan, or to strategize. So you could say it this way. It was God's sovereign plan for the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery to get Joseph to where he is for the saving of many lives. Did Joseph's brothers know that was God's sovereign plan? They were acting out of the hatred of their own heart to do what their will wanted to do. Yet at the same time, they were carrying out God's will. Does that make sense? He does it over and over again. Our whole salvation is based on that. Yes. And let's get to the plan, because you've segued right into the second. The second. Let me just give you these two verses here, then we'll get to the New Testament example. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Does God have counsels and plans that are going to happen? Yes. Do we have plans that are going to happen? Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Example number two, the cross. Let me just ask you a question. Was the cross an evil? And if you say no, then you're saying that the crucifixion of the innocent Son of God was a good thing. Was it a good thing? Yes. Was it an evil thing? Was Jesus deserving of death? Did Jesus have a fair trial? Was Jesus betrayed? Okay. Were those all sins? Who committed those sins? Judas, Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Roman soldiers. Who planned the cross? God. So did God plan evil? Yes. God ordained evil to happen without committing the evil. Evil men carried out God's plan. It's the same thing with Joseph. Let's look at these verses and see how the early church understood it. Peter's up at Pentecost. He's preaching to the, those that actually killed Jesus. And in Acts 2, through 23, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. Who killed Jesus? You killed him. But it was God's definite plan. So was it God's plan for Jesus to die? Yes. Did God carry out the evil in having Jesus die? No. Did evil men carry that out? Will those evil men be responsible? Were they carrying out God's plan? While they were doing it, did they know it was God's plan? No. Same thing with Joseph and his brothers. Okay? Acts 4, 27-28. Truly in this city, this is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What did God predestine to take place? The cross. Who carried it out? There's a list of four people there. Herod, Pontius Pilate, The Gentiles, that's the Roman soldiers, and the people of Israel, that's the Jewish kangaroo court, the leaders that put Jesus on trial. Who physically nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and feet? Roman soldiers. But was that the predestined plan of God? So was it God's plan for Jesus to die? Did God plan evil? Yes. Yes. Did God do the evil? No. No. Did evil men do the evil? Will the evil men be held accountable? Did the evil men do what God predestined to take place? Yes. Do we understand it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes or no, depending on... Okay. So, God didn't make them do it. They acted freely according to their nature, which was sinful, and yet God acted freely to do what He wanted to do. Let me give you some Spurgeon just to get things into some perspective here, okay? We may, we may run out of... Well, I think we, we won't run out of time. We'll be good. Um, let me skip the Spurgeon quote just for the sake of time. You can go back and read that. Okay, because we only have like 15 minutes left. And so Spurgeon gives a good Spurgeon quote about all that. And you can read that when you go back over your notes. So let's look at the second thing here, because this is the meat. I want to get to the meat of all of this. Since God ordains both your good and bad times, be joyful in both. That's the punchline here. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That makes sense, right? When things are going good, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, what's the day of adversity? The day of struggle? Consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made what day? God's made the day of good. God's made the day of bad. You can't control that. What's the one thing you can control in this verse? Be joyful. Be joyful in both experiences. You can't control what God has decided for you to endure, but the one thing you can control is your response. Will you be joyful in both? It's easy to be joyful in times of prosperity, but will you be joyful in times of struggle? That's the real issue here, how this ends. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now let me give you three passages of Scripture from the New Testament that corroborate exactly what Solomon has taught us in the Old Testament. Be joyful in all things, especially in times of trial. Do we see that repeated in the New Testament? Absolutely. Romans 5.3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound just like what he's saying there? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We've been given the Holy Spirit to live in us, to give us the strength to be able to handle the adversity, and to be joyful in those times, and God is doing that to grow our character. The ultimate end is for you to be more like Jesus. That's why He's doing this, so that you will grow. James 1, 2 through 4, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And of course, 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When you go through struggles, don't be surprised it's happening to you. But what should you do? Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Okay. Three verses in the New Testament tell us to rejoice in suffering because God wants us to rejoice. God is working um, character and endurance and hope so that we will grow into maturity. And so the appropriate response to suffering ultimately is to rejoice in that. And that goes countercultural to everything in our hearts and minds. Because we sometimes go through the refiner's fire, a fiery trial. This goes back to Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, 1 through 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them with gold, like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Does God refine you with fire? What's fuller soap? It's like a detergent. Let me ask you a question. I've used this illustration back when I was a youth pastor. It just came to me one time when I was teaching youth. But think about this. When you have dirty clothes, what do you do? You put them in the washing machine. Have you ever seen clothes get washed in a washing machine? What happens? I mean, they go, they go through some serious stuff. And then you take them out and you put them in the dryer. Okay. Now, if you want to get clean spiritually, sometimes God may take you through the washing machine and dryer to get you out. And what does that feel like at times? I mean, you get the detergent, you get the, the, you know, all of the experiences that come, but what's the end product? You are better coming out than you were going in. What were you going in? Dirty. What's the goal? For you to be clean. And sometimes God may take you through a painful process to get you to that point. And when you go through that, you rejoice. You rejoice. Now, where is the hope in our suffering? And we will have time to finish because I want to leave you with hope, okay? Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Verse 2 says, when you pass through the waters. It doesn't say if. What do the waters represent? Man, I'm going through a period of flood. What are fires? What's the promise? God may not take you out of them, but God promises to be with you right through them. What does he say? You're mine. I've redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will be with you. You can handle whatever adversity comes because God will be with you directly through it. Sometimes God may take you out of it. Sometimes God may take you through it. And sometimes God may take you home. But either way, He is with you. And as far as death the final enemy, remember he says it's better to go to the house of death, to contemplate death, to, to look at death as the final enemy. What does Jesus say in one of his I am statements? This is after Lazarus is being raised from the dead in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the hope that we have at Christian funerals, that even though they're dying, they're not really dying they are living eternal life with Christ. And you've got the great promise. And I alluded to this Sunday morning when we talked about being in the Father's grip and in Jesus' grip. Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question, what's the answer? Nobody. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation and all those things that we talked about Sunday. And basically, Paul gets down to the very end and says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. So whatever trial you're going through, you are loved by Christ. Christ cannot be separated from you. You are secure in Christ. He will walk through that with you. We also have this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16-18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Some of you may think, you know, this is not a very light momentary affliction. This is a long affliction. But in comparison to eternity, is anything that we experience here on this earth have any comparison to eternity? What Paul's saying is, whatever you're going through, it's it's just, you're going to go through it. In the grand scheme of things, it may be painful, but compared to what you're going to experience in eternity, you can get through it. Because it's just a temporary struggle you're going through. It doesn't compare to the the joy that awaits you in heaven where you will be able to experience the fullness of God's glory. And Revelation tells us that. Revelation 14, 12-13. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Are we going to need endurance? Yes. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they may now rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Endure, struggle, trial. When you die, you will finally be resting. No more trial, no more struggle, no more mourning, no more pain. You are in the presence of Christ.